I have so much more to say about Iran. You, the restraint that I'm exercising here and not like spending another oh, I'm sure. hour talking about. Well, Iran. yeah, exactly. No one, no one wants to hear another hour on this. But they yeah, do. they, I, want, they I, want to hear from me, Marcus. They want. That's what well, the audience wants. Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? If, if for the folks at home who can't see us right now, I'm doing a little dance just because it's, you know, it's a Monday and we're, we're recording. So a little little dance time. Yeah, we're off our usual schedule because you are um, uh, doing some travel and uh, I'm going to be traveling this week. And so I, we thought it would be better to try to just get this done before the travel. And, you know, we're kind of trying to squeeze it in here a little bit. Yeah. And now that we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all these other we, services. There's expectations. Yes. I mean, our, our new listeners are much more demanding than our students. Hello, were. new listeners. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. welcome. Um, and if you are listening to this, but you haven't subscribed in your podcast player of choice, you should, you should do that. Um, and, uh, you, you know, if you want to leave us a good review, I mean, we're Is not. there a way on Spotify to, like, like something? Can you, like, press, like, a heart button or... I mean, I assume I'm not using Spotify. I wouldn't know. So That's... do that, guys. Whatever whatever the thing is that, that implies you like this podcast, go ahead and give us a like on if, Spotify. If this were YouTube, I would say, you know, like and subscribe. Like Hit, and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Hit that little bell. Get some notifications. Hey, so, Marcus, uh, let's start with a little follow-up. We had a, we had a question from Sebastian from McLean, Virginia, name, name change to protect the innocent, asking about our conversation in the last podcast um, where we discussed – Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And we, we talked about some of the kind of big picture effects of the invasion for European security and for kind of economic issues. But uh, Sebastian points out that we didn't really mention anything about Russia's standing and reputation in the world, stuff that may, maybe you would call soft power. I don't know if you're, if you're into that concept. And Sebastian wanted to know if this is an aspect of the invasion that matters, like in the in the in the long term. And I thought maybe this is something that you I don't know have some thoughts about. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have several thoughts on this. I mean, I think um, there's a couple of different ways to think about what's going on here from a sort of reputational or status perspective. Um, and and they kind of are are you, you can think of them in terms of sort of like rationalist or rational reasons why you know a state might want to have a good reputation or high status. And then there's also an element that's with like the non-rational side of things, which are much more kind of like, you know, ideational um, in in nature. I think, and we can also separate status from reputation. Like I think that that they're linked, but I think that's, it's slightly different. We talk about status first. There's been a lot of work recently in international relations. Um, Jonathan Renshin wrote this book on, on status in international politics and lots of different scholars have sort of thought about this question. Like, first of all, what, what is status? Um, and then why would states want it? Like what, 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 why, what does it like get you if you have like high status? Um, and do you lose something if you, your status is, is lowered? And one of the arguments that he makes is that status is, you know, essentially this sort of like positional, uh, kind of game, right? So like, if you think about it in terms of like a ranking, you have like a, a, a ranking of states in terms of their status. And in order to move up the ranking, somebody else has to come down, right? So it's not like everybody can be high status. His point is like status doesn't work that way. Like status necessarily implies this idea that I have either more status than you or less status than you or maybe equal status than you. But we all had the same status because if we all had the same status, they didn't really want to mean anything, right? So the idea is that states, you know, uh, are kind of competing 
if you will, in this like hierarchy for, for status. Now you might ask, what does that get you? Like, why would a state want to be high on this list of, of, of status? And uh, Wrenchin and other people kind of make, you know, a number of different arguments. But I think two were, two were kind of interesting. The first is just as a, as a general sort of, of rule, states that have higher status probably are afforded more kind of um, uh, concessions and also power of a certain type within international institutions, right? So the idea is that, you know, the higher, higher sort of uh, status states are going to enjoy more benefits when it comes to uh, you know, let's say working through the United Nations or the World Trade Organization or something like that. And we see this, you know, the Security Council, of course, like these are all, you know, states that are pretty typically high status, right? They're st states that, you know, are, are sort of well regarded from a status perspective uh, on the on in, in the international system, at least, you know, sort of historically. So that's that's one idea. It's like it allows states to kind of do things politically, economically, et cetera, through international institutions or organizations that help further their their interests. The other thing, though, is that if you're a high status state, you might be able to have lower status states change their behavior in directions that you want without having to do much. Right. So the idea that, that Renshin talks about is like if you're a state that has high status, the lower status states are going to kind of have a certain level of deference towards you. Right. So in other words, if, if a high status state wants a lower status state to do something, they don't really need to coerce them necessarily because they're going to they're going to often just defer to the higher status state by virtue of this kind of hierarchy existing. So that's another reason why you might want to have high status is that you can get states that are lower status to kind of do things that you want without having to pay a lot of costs. Uh, in order to get them to, to do those things. So that's a long-winded explanation of status in international politics. I think for Russia in particular, they've had, had a tremendous hit in terms of, of their status uh, as a result of, of the invasion, right? And again, we're, we're thinking about this in terms of where they are in the sort of like hierarchy in the international system in, in terms of, of this kind of status variable. And I think without question, most of the Western powers have, have spoken about the sort of need to isolate Russia, the need to make them a pariah, the need to sort of not have them be a part of the major decision making anymore, precisely because of what they did. So if the idea of status is something like, you know, your ability to, to sort of play at the at the be, at, be have a seat at like the, the table of the great powers and really have a good say in how things are going to get done. It strikes me that going forward, Russia is going to have a lot of rebuilding to do in order to uh, uh, regain some of the status that they've they've lost. The other bit, and then I will, I'll, I'll, I'll stop and let you uh, chime in here, Jeff. The other bit I think that's important is this kind of reputational idea, right? So if you think about reputation as a sort of means to figure out how states are likely to act in the future. Well, one of the things that Russia showed us is that they have no problem sort of, you know, uh, uh, infringing on the sovereignty of a, of a neighbor. They showed us that when they put troops on the border and they make threats, they might be very likely to carry out those threats and actually do what they're, they're saying. And so their reputation, it's not necessarily that it takes a hit in the sort of like, I don't like Russia anymore, although I think a lot of people do feel that way. But I think it takes a hit in that we don't know that, that, that Russia is going to be a trustworthy partner moving forward, right? And the fact that they did something so egregious with respect to international norms and the liberal order, I think from a, from a expectations about future behavior, I think it's very negative. And so they've taken a reputational hit as well. So my, my answer would be from a status and reputation perspective, I think that they have done a lot of damage to themselves. Okay. I think the practical implications here, though, are maybe not that dramatic, given that Russia was kind of already a low status power before this invasion. It's not clear to me 
what additional damage Russia did that matters in international relations, right? By just by invade, invading. I mean, when you think about their reputation for aggression against their neighbors, I think that had already been kind of cemented through the last few adventures invading their neighbors. Don't forget, they'd already invaded Ukraine once, taken a big chunk of territory. You know, this is not like news that this is the kind of thing that Russia does. And Russia's behavior toward its neighbors prior to the invasion uh, was sufficient that I think many countries kind of saw the writing on the wall here. So it wasn't. it's not clear to me that the actual invasion has damaged Russia's reputation in a way that will have real long-term effects beyond what it already, all the damage it had already done. So, you know, one way of looking at this is like, you say status, I say power. I mean, maybe one of the factors that's getting kind of mixed up here is after the invasion, the U.S. and its allies uh, are more concerned with how other countries are behaving toward Russia than they had been prior to the invasion in their efforts to kind of create a strong sanctions regime and to further us isolate Russia in the international community. So where countries might have gotten away with cozy relations with Russia prior to the invasion without much scrutiny, now after the invasion, these other countries are saying, yeah, that's not really an acceptable thing to do in this in this uh, international security environment. You need to pick a side. You need to kind of let the Russia ties go. And so in, in that sense, like, is, is that a story about Russia's status or is that a story about the U.S. kind of exercising its hierarchy in the international community and trying to, you know, draw attention to this, these relationships that, you know, kind of go against U.S. interests in the world. So I, that may just be a semantic difference, right? Like, I'm not sure that that's, that's really a difference of substance. But, um, you know, I would say that's the U.S. exercising power, um, which maybe is another way of thinking about status. And I'll, I'll also echo your endorsement of Jonathan Wrenchin's book on this, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think I mostly agree with that. I mean, I, I do think that, sure, you know, Russia had showed itself to be not exactly uh, a state that that sort of uphold sovereignty as like the main thing that it cares about, like in, in 2014. But I do think it's a, it's a slightly, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a horse of a different color when they, when they do the full on invasion and, and frankly tried yeah. to, you know, get to Kiev and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I think we, I think we basically agree on that. Um, the other thing though, I think is interesting though, is that it's, it seems to me that Putin, uh, and if, you know, of course being this sort of first image guy, I, I always bring it back to the, to the leadership. I think Putin does care a great deal, not about his personal status, but about the status of, of Russia uh, kind of more generally. You know, he, when he talks about the, the fall of the Soviet Union being like the biggest, you know, whatever, the, I forget the exact quote, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, um, I think he means that on lots of different levels. I mean, it was, it was catastrophe, you know, economically for a lot of people. It was catastrophe politically. It took a very long time to, to sort of democratize, and, you know, it didn't really uh, end up the way a lot of people thought. But I think it was also catastrophe for... Uh, Russia's, you know, own sort of identity and, and um, understanding of their place in the world. I mean, they essentially overnight went from being, you know, part of this this bipolar distribution of power, where it's the Soviet Union and the United States are the two states that matter. Uh, you know, in the in the sort of thinking about it in terms of blocks, and then that went away very quickly. And I think that there's got to be uh, long term ramifications for that. You know, so so Putin, I think, does see himself partially as being somebody that wants to restore you know, Russia's greatness in the world. And part of that means restoring the status, at least a little bit uh, of what they had previously and get and get back to a position of, of having, you know, a better place on that hierarchy as, as Renchen talks about it. I think we see this in other states too, right? I mean, I, you know, a lot of the conversation about North Korea kind of revolves around this, this idea of, 
you know, what does is, what is Kim want? Well, you know, he wants nuclear weapons, yep, to potentially uh, either for offensive reasons or defensive reasons, but he also really wants uh, to be seen as sort of like a great power, right? This is one of the arguments that a lot of people made about sort of talking about why we shouldn't have had the, the summit that Trump uh, sort of went on. You gave Kim partially what he was looking for, which is to be sort of well-respected. Um, and again, when I say Kim, I, I don't necessarily mean him uh, in the in the sort of personal sense, although I do think that he probably liked the attention, but but more in the sort of North Korean state uh, perspective. You had the United States flying and meeting with North Korean leadership. That was a, that was a big deal for lots of different reasons. One of them is it, it put sort of North Korea up on a, on a little bit in the status uh, perspective. So I think I think we probably agree on, on most of, of this, but I do I do think it's it's a kind of underappreciated variable uh, in international politics that doesn't doesn't always get the attention that I think it's probably uh, deserves. It reminds me of when you mentioned Putin's status, it reminds me of uh, one of these supercut videos that uh, I enjoy of Putin at meetings being where pe- where world leaders are refusing to shake his hand or like avoiding shaking his hand in very awkward right. ways. And his hand is, he's always like putting his hand out and people are turning around and pretending they don't see it. And, you know, I think you, you could imagine a world where that's like, that's really rankles him. And he's like, you know what we should do? We should invade Ukraine because these people aren't shaking my hand. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that's a bit too far. But look, you know, we're we're all we're all human beings, you know, and we have our our sort of emotional needs, and we have we want we have we desire to be recognized. I think if you're a leader, you you probably have this innate desire to have other leaders recognize you as such, like as a powerful person, as a leader, as somebody who's part of this kind of community. And when you don't get that. I got to think it stings a little bit, right? And of course, it's, it's, not a, it's not an explanation for invading Ukraine. It's certainly not an excuse or justification for invading Ukraine. But I think in the sort of like, you know, regression model of like explaining like what's going on here, I think it's something that should be in that model. It should be something we should include in thinking about all of the different, you know, sort of causal factors that probably, you know, contributed to the situation that we find ourselves in now. Marcus, are you a big TikTok user? I am not. I don't have a TikTok account myself. I do not have the app on my phone. My wife, however, very much likes TikTok. She's she's big into sort of golden retriever TikTok and a little bit into like uh, gluten-free baking TikTok. So I've seen many TikTok videos uh, over the years. I've just never actually uh, downloaded the app or installed it or anything uh, uh, myself. Maybe I should. I mean, is this is, is the reason you haven't downloaded the app that you're concerned about? China having insight into your your viewing habits? No, I could care less about that. But what I do worry about is just having another distraction sure. on my phone. I'm at the point in my life where I'm trying to remove distractions. I already play chess, you know, way too many hours a day, as you know. I, I don't need something else that's sort of competing uh, for my for my attention. I got enough to I got enough distraction. Yeah, I'm not a big TikTok user either. Although I, I was the other day enjoying um, watching the uh, Unclogging Drain channel on TikTok. Which is like, exclusive, like exclusively a video of a guy like <laughs> unclogging drains. It's just, it was so it's so satisfying. It's to watch shockingly that satisfying. It really is. It's, what's great about it is, <laughs> and I'm, well, this isn't an endorsement. I don't know this this person. Maybe their their TikTok channel is actually garbage. But what's very satisfying is to see them struggle for so long, like trying to find the like right kind of like where the blockage is, and then once they find it, and that water drains like incredibly quickly. <laughs> so yeah. satisfying. Yeah. So satisfying. I'll um, I'll drop a link in the show notes for everyone who wants to have that moment of in- enjoying the unclogging trains. I bring up TikTok only because uh, I think we're due for a discussion about the risk of TikTok to national security, whether it should be banned, etc. Um, so just a little bit of backstory here. 
the Trump at the end of the Trump administration, the uh, administration proposed basically banning TikTok um, from being distributed in the United States, uh, the TikTok app. And the argument is that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company and that there is a national security risk that comes from TikTok being installed on people's phones, you know, all over the country. The Biden administration after that, that policy was defeated in a, or stayed in a couple of of court cases, and the Biden administration elected not to to pursue it, but has pursued policies of forbidding government employees from installing TikTok on their on their phones, on their personal, on their um, uh, work devices. And there is a kind of continuing discussion in national security circles as to whether TikTok should be banned, whether there should be kind of a more aggressive stance toward forcing. Uh, the Chinese ownership of of TikTok to kind of divest um, into another buyer. That was the Trump administration plan or create new mechanisms for storing data such that the data would not be available to Chinese authorities. And, you know, this is kind of an interesting conversation because it, it touches on a lot of separate issues that, that aren't really that aren't always linked together in, in national security. So there's there are privacy issues here. There are you know, economic issues, there's a, like a, a trade issue at stake, um, foreign direct investment and that sort of thing, and coupled with this idea of Chinese spying and concern about these, this great, great power standoff between the U.S. and China. So I'm wondering, you know, just to, to, to kick us off, I mean, do, do you think there's a real concern here in having TikTok installed in people's phones? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this because you're a little bit more tech savvy than I am or sort of more up on uh, the specifics of this case. but. It strikes me that TikTok has kind of gone out of their way in, in response to a lot of this to, to make the point that the data that's collected in the United States, they say, is like stored in the United States, right? So like, I think sometimes, and I think there's like backups in, in Singapore or like that. But they've kind of gone out of their way to make the point, like if, you, if your idea is that what, what you're watching on TikTok is somehow being like beamed to Beijing and then they're like, you know, they know that, that's not evidently what's happening, at least according to TikTok. Uh, instead, that data is being collected, of course, but it's it's not going anywhere. It stays in the United States. So if if that's actually true, and I don't know if it is true, but if that's true, I'm a little less concerned about the sort of tracking and and privacy uh, concern because that data is is being held in like you know St. Louis or something like that. What what concerns me a little bit more is we saw um, efforts and we've seen efforts in the past by Russia and other actors of using social media. Uh, for disruptive purposes, right? So I'm less concerned about the the use of data that's being generated by TikTok users and more about how China might be able to, if they wanted to, control the algorithm in such a way that the videos that you're watching are of a particular type. So for example, if, the, if China had an interest in sowing, you know, sowing uh, distrust among Americans or trying to make it seem like the election was stolen or something like that, I think it would be relatively simple to, to tweak the algorithm to show more Americans that type of content. Um, and if that's true, then that seems like it's a it's a, a different type of concern um, that does have, however, some national security implications because it's it's you know it's it's a power that's trying to kind of uh, infringe or, or be involved in the electoral process uh, of the United States. So that I think is is problematic. We know that Facebook and Twitter have done various things. Um, over the years to try to prevent that type of thing from happening. I don't know if TikTok has taken the same measures. And so it, it strikes me that that's, that's a viable or that's an area where people should be, be concerned. So what's, what's your take on all this, Jeff? 
I think it's a, it's a tricky one. I, I mean, when it comes to where data is stored and whether Chinese authorities would have access to such data, I think that, you know, there's what TikTok says, and then there's what apparently the U.S. national security establishment believes, which is that China does, in fact, have access to this information if it wanted it. The board of the company can say whatever it wants, but if, you know, ultimately Chinese authorities decided that they wanted access to, to information that came from users of the app, at least U.S. national security authorities seem to think that that would be something that they would have access to. And there, there appear to be some specific situations in which that information was given to people in China. Um, and then this is driving some of the debate now about whether it should be uh, allowed, particularly on government systems, right? And the, the answer uh, for the Biden administration is no, it should not be. Um, so, you know, I think there is more than just uh, suspicion about this. Uh, I think there, pro there seems like there have been specific incidents that law enforcement or intelligence authorities are aware of that, that's driving some of this thinking. Even if that weren't the case, you know, I, th I think it's worthwhile to pin down what are the ways that something like this could be a problem from a U.S. national security perspective. And so I think you hit on a very important one in terms of disinformation or misinformation or just um, kind of contributing to the uh, overall political debate in, in a particular way, right? Um, and, you know, we've seen Russia do these kinds of influence operations all over the world, and China has tended to be I don't know if, if more subtle is the right word, but they're, they're taking a somewhat different tack um, than Russia has in, in terms of wading into these things. Um, but you could imagine that the, the huge install base of TikTok users represents kind of a juicy target for that sort of thing. That's one piece of it. I think there have been more, uh, there's been more emphasis on the risk of specific personal information being given to Chinese authorities for use in facilitating espionage, I think this is a real concern of the of the U.S. government that, let's say there was a particular person or set of people who work in a particular place who have TikTok installed on their phones. Well, if that information could be surfaced through the geolocation data that TikTok is constantly collecting about where you are, um, that could be given to Chinese authorities. They could say, okay, well, we know who works in this building. This is a sensitive building. Um, we could use the personal information of those people for targeting purposes, targeting in terms of targeting for spying, right? Um, learning more about the backgrounds of those people. How can we get to them? How, what kinds of um, leverage points we have over them? These are people we could then approach for more information about what's going on in that building. And so the link between personal data and location data is a really uh, particularly fraught, dangerous combo when it comes to targeting for espionage. So I think that that is one real concern. And we've seen incidents before like, like where U.S. troops had um, like run tracking apps on their phones. Strava. Yeah. 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 And we're like we're like going for and like revealing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Revealing the <laughs> location of military bases. And, and yeah. certainly in uh, uh, in Ukraine, there are many stories right about um, geolocated apps being used for targeting purposes. So so this sort of thing, when, when if, it come, if it came to a real conflict, shooting war, this, this sort of thing would be particularly dangerous to have on the phones of military personnel, right? But even in peacetime, the risk for, for spying, I think, is substantial. And then the kind of last piece of this, so there's disinformation, there's, there's facilitating espionage, and then there's the use of TikTok as a form of malware or a way to uh, enable cyber attacks that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And this, I think, is mostly speculative, although you know, I wouldn't know if there was, there was some information about this, but I haven't heard any like specific argument that, that TikTok is dangerous in this way. But you could imagine that 
if there were something installed by millions and millions of users that the Chinese government was controlling and the came time to launch some kind of cyber attack, then they have the ability to dynamically update this app to do kind of whatever they want, right? If they found a vulnerability in, say, iOS or Android, this would be one mechanism to get it into millions and millions of phones quickly. And so for that reason, you know, maybe it's a good idea not to have that in millions and millions of particularly government-owned phones. I, I think that's another piece of this. This is, I think, mostly speculative, but it is kind of driving some of the discussion. So those are the mechanisms by which TikTok could be uh, impactful for national security. But I think mostly the, the damage from TikTok right now is privacy, Right. And it's it's damaging in the same way that Facebook is damaging. And, you know, at least most of our students are too young to be on Facebook, which which is good. But but Facebook is like, a, you know, it's a criminal enterprise. I mean, it's, the whole mechanism behind Facebook is let's collect everything we can about you and sell it. The damage that Facebook can do just through that process is pretty substantial. And I think TikTok is kind of in the same vein. But as Americans, we have decided in large numbers, that it's okay for Facebook to collect everything they want to know about us and sell it so that we can, like, reconnect with our high school friends for free, right? That's been the bargain that we've made. And I think the difference between Facebook and TikTok, there is no difference. The difference is only who owns it. And and so when when you look at this this question of, like, should we be banning TikTok from phones, it really comes down to not trusting China, right? It comes down to paranoia about what China is uh, has planned in the future and whether we're on this kind of inevitable inevitable path toward conflict. And, you know, just because we're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get us, right? But it's it's still a, a, a big leap from, okay, we have this domestic spyware, Facebook, which we're totally cool with, but this foreign spyware, TikTok, we're less cool with that only because we can envision a situation in which the government of China, like, does something we don't like. So I think from a principled stand against spyware, this is like a little bit of not very firm ground, right? And I'm a little uncomfortable saying, well, just because it's a foreign-owned company, we want to ban it from all of our phones. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with uh, a lot of what you said. I mean, it it, it strikes me, though, that um, privacy, I mean, as Mark Zuckerberg likes to say, you know, privacy is like this quaint idea that used to exist and... (laughs) No, no, basically doesn't exist. That guy, Mark Zuckerberg, come on the pod and talk to us about this. I have some some hard questions. I would, I would, I, I am extending right now an invitation to Mark Zuckerberg if he wants to come on and defend himself. But um, I mean, one of the points though that he makes is is it's not just Facebook. I mean, like anytime you're using like your your phone with a Google like tracking, or you're on Pokemon Go, or any kind of app that like is is accessing your location is is gathering this data about you that they then can sell to whoever whoever they want. So in a way, it's sort of like social media is, is you know, and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter, they're part of the problem. But it's also like just this bigger sort of like, you know, tech issue, which is that you are being tracked like all the time, like literally all the time. And it's very hard not to be tracked. You know, like you, you almost have to become a Luddite not to not to have somebody on the Internet know, some entity know where you are and what you do and, and, and how you live your life. So I think it's, it's a real tough problem. And I, I totally agree with you that it's bigger than in TikTok and it's it's even bigger than Facebook. It's sort of about this kind of like state that we're in at the moment. Um, the other thing, though, too, is that once you sort of make the decision that you're uncomfortable with, you know, TikTok because they're owned by, by China, 
well, what about, you know, Chinese made phones and what about all these other, you know, apps and, and devices that, that China makes? I mean, if we, if we start kind of going down this road of, you know, they could potentially use this to spy on us or they could use this for, for espionage reasons or they could use this for security reasons, you would think that you would then have to apply that to a whole host of, of uh, physical devices uh, and software. They probably don't want to for a number of reasons, including the fact that, you know, China, presumably at some point there'll be some retribution and they will, you know, sort of have a tit for tat type thing going on here. So I think for the U.S. government, you know, devices, that's one thing. But when you start going down um, these these broader kind of like we don't think any Americans should be using TikTok or we don't think we should have, you know, Chinese made phones, that seems to get into really tricky territory. Yeah, I think the the Chinese made phone thing is a, a really interesting point. So, you know, there's the, the case of Huawei. uh giant technology company that uh, has been responsible for building out 5G infrastructure in lots of countries, particularly um, in, in Europe and, and Africa. And, you know, the, the United States has tried to exert a lot of pressure on these countries to, to not have Huawei be the provider of this equipment, you know, on, on the grounds that there's suspicion that China will control the technology and be able to easily eavesdrop on communications technologies that are provided by this company. And I, I think there, I think we're on a little bit firmer ground, frankly, in saying, well, we, want, we don't want that here, right? Because this is the, the manufacturer of the communication technology that is right. central to you know, a, a lot of communication in our country. And that the fact that they're an, a provider of this stuff puts them in a position to eavesdrop on lots of stuff. And there are particular incidents where uh, we suspect that Huawei was putting some kinds of listening um, devices in different places. And there's there's some stories about this. And I don't know I don't know how much weight to put on those, but it seems like there's enough uh, talk of this in kind of national security reporting that there's at least seems like a real concern on the part of people who ought to know uh, whether this is something that, that we would want to allow. And, and so it's not just in, in, in the U.S. The U.S. has put pressure on other countries, on ally countries, not to allow Huawei to build out this infrastructure, even when they're like by far the cheapest option, right? So you're facing these countries which maybe don't have you know a lot of money to spend on this stuff, uh, putting them in a difficult position. And, and there's a really blurry line here between you know national security issues and protecting your communication and command and control processes and also economic protectionism, where you're basically saying like, no, you should give this contract to a different company. That, con that company should make the money, not this Chinese company. And I think the motives here get a little bit uh, mixed up. And, um, and so some of the time when the United States has tried to send this message, don't use this company, it's interpreted as a kind of economic protectionist argument rather than a national security argument. So I think part of how you feel about these issues depends on where you see relations going between the United States and China over the long term. And if you buy into this idea that we're you know, on the verge of we're already in a cold war with China or we're on the verge of you know, great power competition, U.S. and China, the great adversaries into the future, then, you know, it makes sense for the United States to kind of assume the worst um, on, the, on the part of TikTok and, and Huawei and potential future competitors in these spaces down the line. If you're more on the side of these countries can ultimately grow to be economic competitors without being, you know, in this fight for global survival or influence in the world, then you know, the, the idea of discriminating against companies based on their uh, country of ownership 
um, is a little more fraught. And so I think a lot of this is in the eye of the beholder. The Right now in Washington, there's a competition for being tough on China. And I think the policy process is rewarding those who um, want to create new barriers for trade and, and national security purposes between the U.S. and China. And that may, that may be the right call, but um, certainly that's the way things are trending now. And so I think we will expect to see, we should expect to see uh, more states making their own decisions about um, TikTok on government phones. And we should continue to see um, attempts by the United States to kind of block Huawei from commerce wherever our influence extends. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I my, my takeaway is the United States is, is telling China, we don't trust you. And so that's why we're doing this. And so that's in a, in a, in a situation or a, uh, an international system where there's not a lot of trust in that particular relationship. This is just another example of it. And it gets back to what we were talking about last time, not picking up the phone, the hotline, you know, when the, the spy balloon needed to be uh, discussed. Again, we're in, a, we're in a world with China where, you know, there's just a, a, a severe lack of trust. And this is another kind of signal, both a signal of that lack of trust and a signal that we, as the United States, do not trust you. So, Marcus, we had a um, listener ask a question and uh, we have we have a listener question from Angela from Albany, New York. And Angela asks, is Iran developing nuclear weapons? Jordan, to the point. Very, very short. Very short. I think Angela's uh, referring here to the news last week uh, that the International Atomic Energy Agency had detected in, in Iran uh, some highly enriched uranium, 84% enriched. Um, which is nearly weapons grade by U.S. standards, but is uh, certainly higher than Iran had said they were enriching to. Um, and so there's some concern uh, based on this that that Iran has made the decision to to pursue nuclear weapons. Before I get all uh, technical on uranium here, what do you think? Do you think do you think Iran is is trending that way? Are they is is that too late to stop Iran from developing weapons? I mean, this is obviously a very difficult question. I, I don't have any uh, insight into this that I, I don't get reading uh, the New York Times. I mean, I think a couple of, of things are worth uh, noting, right? So this is a, an allegation that has been made about Iran before, right? This is not the first time that it's, it seems like there's some evidence um, that Iran is definitely like moving in this direction. I remember, you know, Netanyahu, for example, talking about this quite a lot several years ago, which is like all the indications that we have, and he means sort of like the, you know, intelligence uh, in, the, in the West from Israel, the United States, et cetera, is, is showing that they do have this intention. Like that was one of the claims that was uh, made a while back. There's, there's intention and there's capacity. And I think that, that, that what's new about this latest report seems to be from the, the naive, you know, non-technical uh, expert in all this is that the capacity might be there now. And so that's the difference, right? So we're sort of thinking, okay, they had this intention. It doesn't really matter about the intention until you get the capacity. Now we have capacity. If they actually do have the intention, then this becomes uh, really problematic. So I don't, I don't know. My gut tells me, though, that it's not, it's not too late. We've talked about the Iran nuclear deal on this, on this podcast before. Um, there, are, there was a period of time previously where Iran was seemingly willing to negotiate on this intention. Um, and even if they currently have an intention to uh, develop a nuclear weapon, intentions can change. And so I never think it's too late. Uh, but I do think that the report suggests that things are not looking good if you are a person who is very concerned about Iran developing a nuclear, nuclear weapon. But I am going to defer to the nuclear expert uh, in, the, in the podcast, you, Professor Kaplan. 
Well, I think you hit on exactly the right point, which is that... Yo! Excellent. Yeah, well done. Very which is that rare. You're listening when I, when I talk about this stuff. I appreciate it. That, that these kind of indicators of capability are not indicators of intention. Um, and so it's very hard to uh, discern intent from what we're getting from IEA inspections, right? And hopefully the uh, intelligence community has other ways of discerning intent and we're not just going by you know, this, this one sample of uranium that's higher than we expected. Having said that, um, so Iran says this is just fluctuations from the process of, of producing enriched uranium for civilian purposes. That strikes me as unlikely, but not impossible, right? Um, so without any additional knowledge of this, I would be more inclined to say Iran was doing some experimenting going higher and didn't intend this to be caught but it got caught. Um, this coincides with Iran making some changes at this centrifuge facility that it did not declare to the IEA as it was supposed to. Um, and so it's all a little bit fishy, um, but it is possible that this is uh, a mistake and they don't intend to be enriching this high. But all of that is kind of beside the political point. So the political point is Iran is now producing material that's like very close to weapons grade and probably could be used for weapons. And the breakout time for Iran, which is the time it would take Iran to produce weapons if it decided to do so, is like a week, right? Like, like we are not far away, for, I should say, from producing enough material for a weapon. That doesn't say that they have necessarily a weapons design or a way to deliver a weapon, right? But for producing the amount of material they need for a weapon, they're probably a week away from that, something like that. Uh, Colin Call said 12 days in congressional testimony last week. Um, so in that zone, right? Very, very quick to get to a weapon's worth of material if it wanted to. And so the message that's coming from the international community, when you see this kind of a result where they've detected a, a, a very highly, highly enriched uranium of some kind, it needs to be kind of unanimous. It needs to say, hey, this is too close for comfort. This is worrisome. You need to step back. You need to take steps to allow the IEA to investigate and figure out what's going on. And And I think that's kind of the overall political message is it almost doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not, right? That the response needs to be as if it was intentional so that it sends a clear message to Iran that um, it won't be allowed to continue in this vein. Now, the IEA, the director general of the IEA has been in meeting with officials in Iran and uh, came out of those meetings saying, oh, yeah, everything's going to be fine. We're going to have uh, they're going to put the, the cameras back in that they took out. They're going to allow more inspections. And then Iran issued a press release saying none of that is true. We're not doing any of those things. And so there's a there's a little bit of a. Um, of a debate about like what Iran is really committed to here that is being kind of worked out in real time as we talk, Marcus. So hopefully there'll be clarity on that soon. But, you know, ultimately Iran needs to take some pretty serious steps to reassure the international community or else the international community should take steps as if Iran is pursuing weapons. This is all the backdrop to this is the Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration bailed from um, in 2018 and uh, that the the Biden administration has kind of taken some steps to try to get into, but haven't, haven't been able to reach a deal with the Iranians. And I don't think any negotiations have been going on on this uh, in the in the recent past. Um, so that's kind of been, been sitting. Um, and in the meantime, Iran is getting ever closer to that point where it can produce weapons if it wants to. So if we uh, want to avoid that outcome, which I, I still think is a very good idea, avoiding Iran getting nuclear weapons, um, then there might have to be some pretty dramatic efforts in the international community to put pressure on Iran to, to stop this behavior. Right. And there was also a report. I, I didn't see um, any U.S. officials comment on it, but Iran has also been uh, doing things with Russia 
uh, evidently, in terms of like uranium transfers and things like that. And I mean, this this creates this very <laughs> complicated sort of web of of relations and uh, with the Russia-Ukraine conflict going on at the moment. It, it makes it all very complicated. And I think a tricky time to be pursuing a new uh, Iran nuclear deal. Not to mention with the domestic situation in the United States, we have this you know election coming up uh, in 2024. You know. The world saw an Iran nuclear deal that was created and then was, uh, uh, as we talked about last time, treaties get, you know, sort of um, suspended or pulled out of the treaty, whatever word you want to use. And so the future uncertainty problem also is is present here as well. So it's a very complicated situation. And I, I would agree with you that if, if the West uh, and Israel are convinced that Iran is, is very close to being able to have the capacity – then I think that that becomes a very high priority is trying to do something diplomatically um, so that we don't see some type of conflict with, you know, Israel and Iran, for example, um, which I think would, would be uh, devastating. So I agree. It's a, it's a tricky situation. Um, and hopefully there are diplomatic back channel communications happening as we speak that haven't made uh, the press and that progress is being made. But we'll see. Yeah, I I, uh, I hope that th- I hope that those communications are happening. I'm not tremendously optimistic about it, but um, I, I hope so. And um, maybe some of these comments that were happening in the around the the IEA's visit to to uh, Tehran will yield some more uh, reassurance about what's going on in these facilities, and that would I think lower the temperature a little bit as well. Yeah, Marcus, uh, thanks so much for for joining me. I think we should we should leave it there. It's been a great episode. Uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you as always, Jeff. And remember, like and subscribe or or heart and whatever the thing is, do that on Spotify. Five stars on, on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Seven stars. I don't know what the maximum number of stars is. Whatever the max is. Yeah, Hit that, that max. That, we appreciate that. And um, if you have any comments for us, you can you can reach us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk, where you can leave a voice message telling Marcus where he was wrong. And uh, we will see everyone next time. See you, Jeff. Um, I got a haircut today. Oh, congrats. and thank you. And I and I went and I sat down and and the woman asked me like how I like my haircut. And I said the same thing which I always say, which is not too short. I would venture that like ninety nine percent of the people that sit down in like a barber shop and when asked, well, how would you like your haircut? They say not too short. It's the most useless way of describing how you want your haircut you could you could think of. Not too short. Two is it's a relational concept. Like compared to what? Like you don't you need something to compare it to, right? Not too short compared to what? Like shaving off your entire like you know thing or letting letting your hair grow out. Like it's, it's not clear. It's not clear. And I'm sure they hear this like a hundred times a day and they just nod their head and they do. So I don't think they should even ask the question. I think you should just sit down and they should just start cutting your hair. You know, who, first of all, who cares what, like how you want it? Like that doesn't really, that's not the point. The point is like you're, you're in the arms of a professional who's going to cut your hair the way that he or she, she's fit and saying not too short is the most useless intervention you could possibly have. I'm impressed by the people who know the like clipper number that they want. Oh, that's a pro move. Yeah. I don't know the clipper number. Yeah. I know I know higher number is longer hair. I usually say make me look less bald. It made me look like I have more hair. How's that been working out? How's that been working out for you? <laughs> it's, not... it's like it's, it turns out you don't want a haircut then. <laughs> well, it turns you want out the opposite. You, when you when you're uh losing your hair as I am, actually like longer hair makes it look a lot worse. You look you look you look more bald with more hair 
um, than you do with less hair. I, I don't know. So with somebody is. who is losing their hair, do you sit down and say not too short or what's your go-to move to the question? Yeah, I say make, make me look less, less bald. Make that, me look that, that's okay. actually what I say. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I don't know how that's working out, but, um, oh, I feel you like great. From, from a certain angle, if you're, if you're shorter than me and you, you look straight at my face, I feel like you might be, you might be fooled into thinking that I still have some hair left. So we'll, we'll edit this out in post. Or, or more precisely, you will. Yeah, I mean, here we are answering the hard questions. Yeah. 